Hello and welcome to the first Good Soil podcast brought to you by Good Soil magazine on Substack. Good Soil is in reference to the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13 that's in the New Testament in the Bible. As you may recall, uh, if you've read that parable, the sower went out and sowed seeds on different types of soil, rocky soil among thorns and thistles, but the, uh, the seed that, that fell on good soil produced a crop a hundredfold, sixtyfold, or thirtyfold of what was sown. That's analogy to Christian culture and now later in the game to uh, the works of literature and arts that it produced, specifically in our case to what John Sr., the late professor of great books at the University of Kansas, called the thousand good books that every child should have read, every person actually should have read. But let's get to our first episode. Let's talk about God's books and ours. St. Augustine, John Sr., and the case of the missing childhood. You might recall another verse from the Bible, Romans 8, 19-21. For creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. For creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery and corruption and to share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. St. Augustine of Hippo, that indispensable father and doctor of the church, said that God has written two books revealing himself to man, the book of scripture and also the book of nature. The book of scripture requires the interposition of language and the possession of critical thinking skills, but the book of nature translates directly to the senses, what what is real, what's true, good, and beautiful, and revealing the existence of the creator. As Psalm 19 says, the heavens show forth the glory of God, and the firmament declares the works of his hands. These are the books of God and the interplay between the two sets of conditions for culture to bud and blossom. And it did blossom magnificently into Western civilization, into Christendom. That blossoming largely shaped our own books and works of art. And they they spoke and still speak unapologetically about God. They speak and reveal goodness, beauty, and truth. They also speak clearly of our faults and failures because the whole enterprise is shot through with sin, personal and institutional sin, because we're human. We are fallen creatures trying, when we're at our best, to build a city of God, even though we do so with dull and broken tools. Yet, historically, they were the tools that were available. Even in that which is lacking, the stories are still instructive through the bad examples that they reveal, and they tell us how to not be, quote-unquote, that guy. What about our books? Our books, the good and the great books, those of the West, number perhaps 1,100, according to John Sr.'s reckoning. There are a hundred or so great books that over time created a great conversation. That's the wording of Mortimer Adler on topics of universal importance. To read these great books and to participate in that great conversation is not to be educated for trade per se or for a profession, but rather to be educated as a human being for freedom. But we have a problem today. To even understand those 100 books or participate fruitfully in that great conversation, scaffolding must be built to reach their height. And that scaffolding consists of familiarity with 1,002 books. Hear me out. (laughs) The book of nature, the book of scripture, and the thousand good books that every child should have read, that every person should have read. When I said familiarity with, I mean through direct experience. Reading the book of nature requires climbing trees to pick their fruit, or for whatever reason strikes your fancy. It requires climbing up hills to view the summit at the top. It requires fishing and swimming in ponds, rivers, oceans, It requires things like building snowmen, learning the names of the trees, the birds and the animals around you, and how they look and smell and act and even taste. 
Reading the book of scripture requires putting it into action also. The St. James said, for if any hearer of the word and is not a doer, he is like a man building or looking at his natural face in a glass or in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and right away forgets what he looks like. Reading the book of scripture then requires us to live the commandments and the Beatitudes. It requires us to to love others as Christ has loved us, to worship and pray, and hopefully to grow in holiness and virtue. And reading the thousand good books to any benefit requires that we allow the words to flower into songs that we sing, into poems that we memorize and come to love, and reading fairies and fable tales that teach us truth, even if they're wearing fantastical costumes. That way the images stick in and dilate the imagination, show us goodness, draw beautiful pictures either with words or with pens and paints, or whatever materials are at hand. Cultureless kids. The foundation then of any cultural restoration that we may want to undertake is a generation of children who are intimately familiar with those thousand good books, who have been deeply immersed in the natural world and who don't look in the mirror only to walk away and forget what they look like. Therefore, faith must be foremost, not in theory, but in practice. Will this end up being a failed experiment? I hope not, but even if that ends up being true, we still have to try. And I am hopeful that the experiment won't fail, but there is hard work ahead if we're willing to undertake it. Listen to John Sr. He said, I tried to get college students at the age of 20 to fill in the children's books that they should have read at 4, 8, 10, and 12 years old, discovered that the problem isn't only books, it isn't only language, it is things. It is experience itself that's been missed. These kids lacked any sort of deep familiarity with the book of nature. Senior continued, when you plant even the best children's literature in even the brightest young minds, if the soil of those minds has not been richly manured by natural experience, you don't get the fecund fruit of literature, which is imagination, but infertile fantasy. Children need direct everyday experience of fields and forests, streams, lakes, oceans, grass, and ground so that they can spontaneously sing along with the psalmist. Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons and all ye deeps, fire, hail, snow, ice, stormy winds, which fulfill his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, serpents and feathered fowls. Senior said that if they don't know the facts to begin with, not as something from National Geographic or at the zoo, they cannot learn to sing or love to read the children's literature, which celebrates these things. I was blessed from the time I was six years old until I moved out of my parents' house to live with my older brother and both my parents in a house right on the edge of the city limits in our little town. The rear edge of our backyard butted up to 30 acres of field and forest and a creek ran through it. It was the early 1970s and the neighborhood was full of kids. There was Alfred and Gina who lived in the houses to the south of us. Sean and Shane were in the house to the north. Then there was Steph and Christy. In the house on the bend there was Brett who sometimes let me ride behind him on his motorbike as he carved through the woods. There was Tim, who was the youngest and only boy born after a succession of older sisters. Dave and Danny, Chuck and Kathleen, Mike, Tim, and Fred. Those were just the kids on our block. We played football and baseball in the open fields behind our house. or in our backyard. No parents watching or refs or um, spoiling the fun. Disputed plays were argued and sometimes fought over, but we learned fairness. We rode our Schwinn Stingrays en masse to the pharmacy with a big candy aisle to get zero bars, baseball cards, and uh, occasionally a pack of Swisher Sweets, but that's another story in itself. There was a neighborhood mom network. There were eyes everywhere, all connected by landline phones, so we couldn't get away with anything seriously bad or wrong, like uh, hiding in the bushes beside the highway rolling black walnut hulls under passing semi-trailer tires. If uh, memory served, several of the moms were involved in that intervention, and I believe a hairbrush came into play. 
So where can you find the neighborhood mom network today? Does it even still exist? I seriously doubt it because the kids are in their bedrooms playing video games. They're not outside. They're not playing games that they make up or playing sports with no reps and ohms. And the parents are glued to their mobile phones. Here was a typical hour from my childhood extracted from a, a trunk novel that I wrote about 20 years ago. If you wonder how things used to be or maybe how they could be again, I call it uh, bead curtain. As the morning frost melts beneath slanted sunlight, playing cloud shadows across the landscape, leaf fires burn in barrels and in mounds, the rising smoke incenses the chilly air. Grandfather oaks drop rusted leaves the size of mittens. Further back in the yard, two apple trees with silver trunks drop overripe fruit on the cider giddy bees below. These bees don't often sting as plump as they are from their meals. Then over the hum of their wings, an alarm sounds. Apple fight! A motley collection of the neighborhood boys pry metal lids off trash cans and draw up battle lines and stockpile ammunition, leveling ultimatums. Then these superpowers unleash wave after wave of mushy, wasted nutrition at each other. Hey, look at Mr. Tanner's fence, says Augie, the oldest and the unspoken leader of the four boys. Sebastian, Paul, and Matt turned in his direction. The chain-link fence behind his position was choked with apples. If you hit it just right, the apples stuck and held like split-shot sinkers on a fishing line. If you threw them with more force, they sheared into pieces and landed on the adjacent Tanner's lawn. Come on, fill up, Matt said, and the battle shifted. Each boy loaded up his shirt with apples and beans the fence, trying to stick his own apple or unstick one of the others. The fence looks like a bead curtain. Then the kitchen window slishes open. Augustine, you boys will clean up that mess before you start anything else, and throw the pieces in the field. These bees are horrible this year. Ah, oh, they don't hurt anybody. In the field. Okay, Mom. Paul picked up a hefty apple and held it to his mouth like a microphone. Charlie Mortar, fire for effect, danger close. He let go into the large empty field behind the back fence and rolled through the tall grass by a lone mulberry tree surrounded by milkweed and Queen Anne's lace. They're retreating. Take positions, men, Augie ordered. The four of them hopped over the fence into the tanner's yard. Ready on the right? Ready, said Paul. Ready on the left? Ready, said Matt. Sebastian held up his thumb. Fire at will. The cool air was filled with the sounds of outgoing rounds and huge explosions. They combed the lawn for even the smallest projectiles. The back door opened. Mrs. Tanner stood there trying to stifle a laugh that had been afflicting her for several minutes as she watched the battle. Thank you, boys, she said. Enemy spy, Matt yelled as they dove back over the fence to safety, their jackets flapping. So you see, I am hopeful that we can once again, hopefully soon, see normal days like these, and perhaps it is now even closing on the heels of the specter of this empty existence where love seems to have grown cold and faith disappeared from the earth.